Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players, by trumpet players, and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by the World Trumpet Federation. Founded by three exceptional leaders in the trumpet community, the World Trumpet Federation is rapidly becoming known for its valuable information, fresh perspective, and general awesomeness. Looking for inspiration as a teacher? WTF. Looking for ways to improve your playing? WTF. If you're looking anywhere else for all things trumpet, just think to yourself, WTF, and go to www.worldtrumpetfederation.com for all your trumpet and teaching needs. And Wegmans. That's right, our first non-trumpet-related sponsor and the official grocery store of Trombomundi. Wegmans has been providing outstanding food and drink to trumpet players for decades. Looking for something special? Wegmans carries a wide variety of culinary options for you, your family, or your contemporary trumpet ensemble. Looking for a place to hang out and have dinner? No offense, Brian. Wegmans is the place for you. With convenient locations and ample parking, Wegmans holds the principal chair among grocery stores. Tell Kroger this could have been them. Wegmans is once again setting the bar high with next-level products and services. And now, here's a little about the show. We essentially have three segments. Warming up, a couple things, and no offense. We'll use these segments to cover information that Joey, Brian, and I think is important. Gentlemen, shall we? This is a segment we call Warming Up, and it gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what do you have for us today? I just love that we always start with cornet. We don't have to. Joey can no, go no. first. We no, don't. I think it's great. We do not always start yeah, with cornet. To be clear, you always start you. with cornet. You guys have been waiting a while to figure out what the next cornet thing is we're going to talk about. <laughs> so this past week, I sat in on a really cool um, lecture with um, this great cornet virtuoso and soloist, um, Philip McCann. Now, Philip um, is from Scotland and came down to... Yorkshire to play in bands as a principal cornet player when he was 14 mm -hmm. he was hired to play a principal cornet chair um, and he ended up as um, at one point he was principal of the Black Dyke Band um, and there's a famous story of him playing a, a solo in contest that goes up to a high C sharp um, and it just says um, um, you know it's a fermata on it um, I think it says Munga on it. So play as long as you can. And I think the, the legend is he held it for about 14 seconds. Um, <laughs> and, then he, then, and then it slurs down to like a, a, an F sharp. Right. Um, it's a great moment. Um, and, of course, the legend grows and grows and grows. But it was a pretty amazing moment. Now he's known as um, – he, he did a series of recordings calling, called, I think, the, the Greatest Melodies or something like that. Um, and he's, he's known as um, a lyrical player. Um, and um, a great player, um, a great, um, great understanding of vibrato. And in, in his talk, he was, he was discussing, you know, when you should use vibrato, when you shouldn't use vibrato, mm -hmm. how it's important. Um, and I remember when I was over there in 2009-10 on sabbatical, I lived two miles away from where he was teaching at the Huddersfield um, Uni. And so I called him up, and he um, agreed to teach me a bunch, of, a bunch of lessons during that year. And um, I sort of knew about this vibrato thing that, that he um, 
was after. So I, I thought, you know, I'll go in and I will use as much vibrato as I possibly can. And so um, I was playing Nap the Napoli solo. And um, so I started playing it. I did the, the cadenza and I, I played through the whole solo. And I used, well, to my ears, I used just an obscene amount of vibrato, um, sort of way over the top, more than I ever used on anything. And, um, and, I, and I finished playing. And he says, you know, Brian, you, you play very well. You're, you're a good, good player. He said, I think the first thing we should talk about is, is vibrato. And um, I said, okay. I said, um, is mine just a little bit um, too much, a little over the top, a little too wide? And he said, what vibrato? <laughs> <laughs> Not <laughs> even close. My, yeah, one of my favorite stories. He brought it up in this master class that I was uh, attending and he said, uh, he said, I think we got there eventually, didn't we, Brian, <laughs> in, the ma <laughs> in the master class, Bye. which is kind of cool. But he, his big thing is all about um, music and musicianship, and it's not really, it's a, I mean, for him, the vehicle is the instrument. He said he did play trumpet once uh, for about three months, didn't like the sound a whole lot, um, mm. and he really wanted to be a, a cornet player. Um, he taught at the uni and was administrator at the Huddersfield Uni for years, just recently retired, just a few years ago. Um, and now he's a, he conducts a lot, but he still practices. Um, he talked about mouthpieces. He had um, uh, two mouthpieces he actually played, and um, it's just dramatic difference of the, the color of a, of a Sparks mouthpiece versus the, the mouthpiece that he's been using for, for all these years. Um, it was really an amazing masterclass. and just reminded me about how much investment just in music and musical line and in artistry he he's interested in and not in just the technical slamming through obviously he has great technique and he can play the fast stuff too but that's really not where his heart is and as a conductor he talked about the context pieces and the evolution of contest music um, really now not being about the music but being about the athleticism of the contest and mm. how difficult the music can be made it was just fascinating so if people are looking for some um, musical inspiration. Go it ahead. You're gonna yeah, it looks like the name of the first two. They're called All of the World's Most Beautiful Melodies. Most Beautiful featured Melodies, Featured the yes. Golden Cornet of Philip McCann. Those yeah. That's volume one and volume two. Now, volume three uh, is slightly different. It's just The World's Most Beautiful Melodies. And there's a volume three and a volume four. And all of them say The Golden Cornet of Philip McCann. What's yeah. up with ah, that? Sounds like it, I need to own these. Yeah, sound and vibrato and um, just artistry. And, and he was he was great. He was he's he has sort of a reputation as as um, being sort of a, a scowling personality and difficult in rehearsals. And um, he I just found him delightful and helpful and supportive and nice and kind. And um, he didn't take any he wouldn't take any money for any lessons. Wow. Um, well, just interested in helping. Is his cornet gold-plated, or is the golden cornet just a thing? The one that because I saw every him one play of these album covers say the golden cornet of. But is it a picture of the instrument? No, they're landscape pictures. It just I think it, was it says a, that. I think it was a. I don't think it was a gold plate. I think it was a um, like a brass. In, in reference to the sound. Yes. Yeah. I just thought it was funny that every time yeah. the golden cornet of. Yeah. 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 That's great. It's yeah. just. He's got it's great students all over the all over the world too, who studied with him. You just reminded me of a Napoli story. Can I tell a quick Napoli yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, tell the Napoli story. So I was getting ready for an audition, and I went in and played Napoli for Keith while I was at, at UNT. And uh, notice I didn't say the uni, because that's the University of North Texas, just to yes. be clear. Uni is not a term uh, we use so in the United States. And that's referring to maybe uniforms, but <laughs> right. not for university. And then your uni. Or, or a bicycle with one wheel. 
Oh, unicycle. any of those would now be we're okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Anyway, so I get into play, and I it's one of these things like I'm I'm I dig in and I play through it and I play all the variations. And Keith just sits there and listens, and I finished, and he said, "Man, you sound amazing on that. That is really going to be something when you learn all the notes." <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, great. Wow. Oh, okay. oh. <laughs> One so, sentence. Ooh. Well, oh, the master of that. But uh, so every time I someone says Napoli, I'm like, I'm going right there. That takes me right back. Right back. You That's sound fantastic. amazing. That's really good. That's going to be something when you learn all the notes. <laughs> Well, Philip McCann, you've had a, that's like a brush with greatness, man. Yeah, he was, he was cool. And, uh, and it was so fun to, to have him remem remember me mm -hmm. all these years, a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're memorable. You're nothing if not memorable, Brian. Apparently. Agreed. Did you hang out with him after the, oh, never no. mind. Never mind. <laughs> never mind. Never once. That's not a thing. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why? Joey, what do you, what do you have for us today? I, I shockingly have a question for you guys. Unbelievable. So, as you guys know, I, I don't love the term warming up. Generally, from a, just a practical standpoint, if I think it gives trumpet players uh, an excuse not to sound good because, well, it doesn't really count because I'm only warming up. But I understand the concept of if you're getting somewhere and you want to, you're want to make sure you're ready to play in whatever context you have to play. So let me ask you this: How much of warming up is actually physical, and how much of it is is really just mental? that you want to just feel like you're ready, playing a couple of notes. Does that really provide any physical, something physically necessary, or is it really just making you feel better that I played a couple of notes, now I'm ready? What are your thoughts? I, I'm going to quote a former teacher, Kevin Eisensmith, who defined this for me like early on in the master's degree when he said the purpose of warming up is to physically and mentally prepare to play the instrument. Right. So, but and how that's much is my, it for me, it's both. It's a matter of getting acclimated to it. It's, it's, you know, I always use the word sanctuary for practice. So it doesn't matter to me whether it's warming up or whether it's doing a routine. My, my thinking on that has shifted since we started to do the thing. But like I, if, you show I mean, up, if you show up to a rehearsal or, or a concert. Right. How much warming up are you doing well, and what is it really for? I mean, now because of the because of the thing, when I get somewhere, I feel like I'm ready to go. So if I play a few notes, it's just to make me feel better that I'm ready and to kind of acclimate myself. It's so mental, it is a more I mental think, thing. I think it's a mental game. And um, yeah, yeah, for me, it's a it's a mental game. And I think when I'm, quote, warming up in the morning, when I'm doing the thing, um, I'm trying to get better at the instrument. It's not a it's not a warming up thing. Right. Yeah, that's a um, practice thing. Yeah, it's a practice thing. Um, before a show, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, I think there is a small physical aspect, but I think it's much more mental. Put down the job, put down the drive, um, you know, and and get your brain ready to play whatever it is you have to play. Um, sometimes there's a, I, I guess in a low register, there's a lip loosening up thing that helps me. Got to play some loud low notes. Um, you would play loud. Really? That's redundant. <laughs> you said it was you. Yeah. Right. Um, it was, Have you ever not... tried to play any soft low notes? <laughs> well, I like to loosen it up a little. I'm going to say no. I've sat next to him for a long time. That's no. correct. That's the correct answer. There's nothing. Yeah. So yeah, but I think mostly it's. I mean, what percentage? Ninety percent mental. Yeah. See, I mean, that's where I'm headed. Is I I agree with you. I think it's much more about. A mental, okay, 
now I feel okay, but you were probably okay anyway. You just didn't, you weren't mentally ready until you played a couple notes and then you're like, okay, yeah, now I'm good. Yeah. So and I do think thing they become much more mental. It's the same yeah. thing with guys who have to do the same thing every day. Like right. They have to feel like before they do that, before they're ready to play anything, they have to mm. do these things. You mean like a 20-minute whisper G? Yeah. Well, I, don't <laughs> have to, I don't have to do that. Yes, you I do. I like to do that. Yeah, again. I like to do that. No, no. You're not okay as a person if you don't do that. <laughs> but but the there are thing I do. But there are people that... Uh, and, and, you know, this gets into kind of almost like a superstition of, you know, if I do this, then I'm good, you know, right. and we've seen this in all, not just in, in musicians and, and artists and, you know, and athletes, they have sort of a, a routine of things that they do that they even know doesn't do anything for them physically, but is a mental preparation. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that unless it really just gets in your way. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, do we have to change this name of this part of the show now? Because now you're like knocking Mentally warming up. up. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. What are we no, going to? We should definitely keep the name. All right. He just doesn't okay. like this part of the show. No, yeah. it's not. All right, Bill. What do you got for us? Well, guess what, boys? It's time for another round of backboard bingo. Yay! I didn't get. I didn't See? get my card. Uh, sent, Brian has them. I have them. Of course but he does. But like Hold any great game, game, listen, it's been expanded to specific editions. So today is the orchestra edition oh my goodness. of Backboard Bingo. And being honest, I wanted to give our listeners a chance to send in more questions. And Karen is off this week. She's on vacation. Oh, that's right. It's vacation. Yeah. And she's, yeah. In, Can she's in Canada. Right. Okay. Good for her. So question one. Are we ready? Do we start? It's a good place to go. Okay. Question one. Who served as principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic prior to Phil Smith winning the chair in 1978? Weren't you in school in New York then, Joey? That was a while. I'm not as old as Bill. <laughs> Shut up, man. I wasn't in college either then. Bill was doing his master's. I was in sure. junior high. Wow. Now, this is, I asked this because, I mean, I had to go, I will admit, I had to go look it up because we think of, and since 78, I mean, Philip Smith is in our mind. There's New York Phil. That's him, right? I can hear him tapping. Joey, no, you, someone's typing something. That's I Joey. Are you looking no, I'm it up? taking notes. I'm not looking up. Okay. I, I don't cheat. <laughs> He's not cheating. All right. Are you, you want the, the answer? An, the answer is I do not know. Gerard Schwartz. Oh, yes, it was. So here's the thing. I now, did know. Oh, uh, he held it until right. seven, till 77. Now, my trusted and esteemed source in New York says that Lewis Ranger and John Ware may have covered between the time Schwartz left and Phil Smith took over. How long was Schwartz there? He was there from 73 to 77. Oh, I didn't even think it was that long. Before yeah. him, before Schwartz, might as well do this. We're here. Vacchiano. Yeah, that was Vacchiano up until then. And then yeah, we right knew that. Then. And then before Vacchiano, forty-two to seventy-three. Right. Yeah, I thought yeah, that part. We I thought we knew that. Then who covered it from twenty-three to forty-two? Nineteen twenty-three <laughs> to nineteen forty-two. I got I believe this. That was that was William Stoneman. I, I think. I, you, you know what? That's right. Harry Glance. Glance. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we should know yeah. that. We should. Yeah. Know. But, we should definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. shameful, actually. But yeah. in that time in between, there's the and of course many thanks to our friend Pete Bond who kind of confirmed some of these things for me. I asked Pete because Pete <laughs> nice. was there. Yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah, Pete of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra recently retired. And who knew, just found this out in this, out of this conversation, went to high school with Karen from the home office. Is that right? Oh, wow. the small world. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It's not he surprising she didn't tell us that. So yeah. She doesn't no, want to be well, associated with Pete. Yeah. No, she, she doesn't claim to know any trumpet players. Mm. All right, question two. Name three principal trumpet players with direct ties to both the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Dallas Symphony and three? Philadelphia. I think two of these you can get. The third principal? one caught, yes. The third one caught me completely by surprise. So I don't want this to seem like I'm asking you guys stuff you don't know, because I didn't know it either. Three principal trumpet players with direct ties to both the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and the Philly Orchestra. They played principal in Dallas. All three played principal in Dallas. All three of these names played principal in Dallas. Wow. Well, that's where I'm. I'm shot. What do you got? I got nothing. David Bilger. He he was in Dallas. Yeah, Jeff Kernow and Frank Katarabic. Jeff played principal in Dallas. I didn't know any of those. (laughs) I mean, I know who those people are. I didn't. And I think around the time, around the time I was there, that was Mike. Michael Sachs was in Houston, right? Yeah, but he was in fourth in Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fourth in Houston, yeah. Yeah. And then he went to Cleveland, and then Jim Wilt took his spot there right mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. Crazy, though, right? The Dallas to Philadelphia connection. Wow. All right. Question three. To highlight another connection between no Texas. Yet. Yet. Oh, points. Uh, I've got, I scored 10 points on each of these so far, so I'm in the lead. <laughs> You're doing amazingly well. 20 <laughs> to zero <laughs> to zero. Yeah, we have no points, Joey. We got nothing. Well, Brian gets points for the second question because it's about the Philly Orchestra, and he lives closer to Philly than you do. So then wait, he gets wait, then, 10. Then shouldn't he actually know more I about should, Philly than I do well, when he, he doesn't? Well, he should, but there's no penalties in this game. It's backboard bingo. Question How, three. Where's my card? <laughs> I emailed it <laughs> to you. lost it. Question three. To highlight another connection between Texas and New York City, name the principal trumpet player of the Met Opera turned teacher with ties to both New York City and the Lone Star State. Well, that's Billy Hunter. Mm. Oh, yeah. Principal of the Met, and he is uh, from Texas, and he's teaching at the University of right. Texas at Austin. And, right and I'm going to say that I forgot about this current thing, so I have it. There's another one. Same what? school. Same school. From You said from the Met? From the Met to the University of Texas, Austin. It happened before. Really? Oh, Ray Cursera wasn't the Met. There it is. Oh, Ray. Ray yeah. Was, no, he was the uh, NBC, uh, he was the NBC El orchestra. Bio says principal in the Met. When he oh, was he also ni- played in the answer. When he but was I, 19. I took, wow. a, I took one lesson with Ray Cursera, started teaching there when I, when I was in, in high school. And so, you know, with the University of Texas about an hour from, from my house, I called and I said, I, you know, I want to come up and audition. They said, to him, oh, when do you want to come up? So I came up on a Saturday morning and I walked into his office and, all right, what would you like to start with? And I played the first thing. And Mr. Cressera looked me dead in the eye and he says, where else are you auditioning? <laughs> Which is a question I was not prepared for. Right. I thought I'm auditioning for him. I was taking this very seriously. I had my list, I was practicing, I was ready to go. I said, I'm sorry, what? And he says, I don't imagine this is the only school you're applying to. Where else are you auditioning? And I told him I'm auditioning at, you know, I'm at Juilliard and at Eastman. And I'm looking and he goes, okay. So when you go there, and he gave me an hour and a half lesson. He's like, well, what mm. else do you have? Have you got something for this? You got something else? He was so great. It was my only experience with him. I, I didn't know him well. Yeah. I had friends that then went there and studied with him, and 
I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him. The no, never. Uh, fantastic. fantastic. Never. But not just a legendary player, as there are lots of legendary players, but also just an unbelievably giving teacher. He called me on the phone personally. You know, he was like, I, I actually answered the phone. Can I speak with Joey, please? I said, oh, this is Joey. Hi, Joey. It's, it's uh, Ray Crisera. And I said, uh, what? <laughs> like, I didn't know what to do. Like, why would, it, why would Ray Crisera call me? And he why said, are you calling me? I'm just checking in to see how your auditions went. We're getting ready for scholarship stuff here. I wanted to know how everything went with you. And I had told them that I'd, I'd gotten into Juilliard. Oh, well, that's great. Congratulations. I know you'll do great there. You know, wish you well, blah, blah, blah. Like, that, that's the kind of guy. That's fantastic. That was, that was Ray Crisera. Mm -hmm. But that's right. Now, yeah. I remember this story, too. What you played for him out of the shoots in that audition was Brandenburg, wasn't it? Yes. We were actually performing <laughs> yeah. with my high school orchestra. We Might were, so I played the opening of the third movement. Not like you yeah. wouldn't have known anyway, but helped him figure it out pretty early on yes. in the yeah. process. So, but he was a high really, school he was, he was great. So I, yeah. I got both of those then. You did. Yeah, you got both, which yeah, is extra a, points. Yeah. So yeah. you Amazing. guys, so Brian has 10, Joey has 9. And well, I have oh, 20. That is oh, awesome. How, how did I get double points and get an odd no, number? You, you guys are tied at 10 because it was 4.5 each. That's the way I have it weighted here. You didn't even okay. know one of those answers. I Perfect. forgot. You only knew one and I, I gave you two. that Billy Hunter just happened. I, I should get at least this, 25 I, points for that. I wrote this before <laughs> he took the job this time. Okay, question four. Don't worry about the points. I'll assign the points later. <laughs> I All right. This game. This is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. From just to make it fair, we've had a couple Texas questions. We had a silly Joey question before the Texas question. Have known. Okay. I got the, I doubled up on the you, Texas question. You Ryan did. got zero on the Philly question. <laughs> the Philly question. Doesn't that make? I shouldn't I have four times as many points. He got proximity points to Philadelphia. But All you right. just said I should know Texas questions. Look, I, yeah, but this is the orchestra edition, so the rules are off. It's not the same as the other ones. All right, question four. From 1965 to 1973, Gordon Webb served as principal trumpet of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, great Remember, British Brian, questions. I see where this you. is going. Name the trumpeter who held the post prior to Webb. Who held the chair, principal trumpet of the London Philharmonic from 1964 to 1965? I have no idea. 64 to just that one year? 64 to 65, yeah. London, 64 to 65. Um, that wasn't I get, you, I get, was it, Bill? I get, you know what? <laughs> you want, right before you, wanna, you, you, you went you, back to school? You want to know what? Philip Jones? Ding. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Brian wins. <laughs> wow. Okay, that was impressive. I'm, I'm All impressed by that. Things British. He, that doesn't count. He's got a British pass, passport. This doesn't <laughs> count. He was born there. All right. Who was before Philip Jones? Now that the points have been awarded. 30 points to Brian, by the way, for that. What? He gets a British <laughs> question? I gave you an answer you didn't know for a Texas was question? It Howard, was it Howarth before Jones? No, Dennis Egan. And then I before that, I don't, even, I don't know that name. Before that, Eric Bravington, and from 1943 to 1948, this is the one that intrigued me. 43 to 48. Snell through the World War II. Right, Malcolm Arnold. Oh, <gasps> wow! Isn't that cool? Okay, that yeah. is cool. That's really cool. So he was okay. doing that. He was as principal through the fire bombings. Yeah. Right. That's got to be a rough Oof. couple seasons. <laughs> no doubt about it. Man. All right, one more. Question five. Oh, my gosh. 
Name the player who is considered by many to be the most in demand as an on-call per-service trumpeter for orchestral pops programs around the United States. In this capacity, he has performed with such groups as the Cleveland Orchestra, Cincinnati Pops, the Houston Symphony, the St. Louis Symphony, the Pittsburgh Symphony, and others. Joey Tartell. Ding, ding, ding. Brian wins again. <laughs> I, Wait, I can't even get my mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> I think your mouth was open. I think that's the problem. How could you not get that question right, Joey? I was, I had it. You just you jumped on the buzzer too fast. Well, that's, part of the, that's part of bingo no matter where you play. Whoever yells bingo first wins. Well, if I had a card fast. to put stuff on. Right. Under the B, Joey Tartell. There it is. <laughs> wow. Wow. Bingo. <laughs> and bingo. Come on. I'm so glad we brought back backboard bingo. It's awesome. It is, it's, a, it's a crowd favorite. It is a crowd favorite, but I'm sure, listen, if people keep the viewer mail coming to Joey, what's the email address? Where, how can they email us? Theopenbell at gmail.com. Outstanding. There it is. So keep those cards and letters coming. In the meanwhile, we'll keep doing our research. And Karen, hope you're doing well up there. All right. Time for a couple things. All right, look, it's human nature to look for an easy out, the path of least resistance, pun intended, or some sort of magic pill. But when it comes to developing high notes and more specifically, the skills needed to be a great lead trumpet player, snake oil, magic pixie dust, and the promises of delusional internet gurus are not the answer. <laughs> Like all things trumpet, we must trust the process and proceed with the right information. Let's talk about lead playing today. Yes, let's talk about lead playing. Yeah, obviously this is a subject near and dear to my heart, as this is how I've made most of my living as a professional trumpet player. And watching the miss, diss, and bad information that is out there is really, really frustrating. Because first off, Yes, if you want to be a lead player, you do need to have a certain amount of range, right? So let's go right at that first. Because yeah. if, you, if you really don't have the range necessary, you're sort of out. Even if you've got great style, you've got great sound, if you can't play the notes on the page, you're not going to be a lead player. So oftentimes, this is the first thing people are looking for, a shortcut on how to do it. And there are usually two things that people go at first. First, the magic mouthpiece. Mm. All you've got to do is get a magic mouthpiece, and then you can just play high notes. Right. Or second, some sort of gimmick. Instead of playing the trumpet how you know have been taught to play the trumpet well, you should do it somehow differently that will then magically open up the upper register and then you'll suddenly have high notes. Both of these things are complete garbage. <laughs> They're not true. Now, <laughs> equipment can be an important part of being able to get opening up range and getting your best sound and the right sound for the right job. I don't play the same mouthpiece when I'm playing in a, in a brass quintet or in a, in a classical solo that I would play lead the big band. I don't. I use different equipment. I use the right equipment. And generally that might be a little bit smaller. We've talked a little about that before. A little about that. Trying to find the right place for that. But I have about the same range on every mouthpiece I own. So it's not giving me more range. It is allowing me to use that range with the right sound and projection for that mm. job. So right. the, like the high C or the high D that I would play, you know, l let's take something like that we all know, like the Artunian Concerto, right? So the right at the end, at the end of the cadenza, when you play up and you play that B flat over the whole orchestra and then everybody comes in. Like that sound, 
Now, if I'm if I'm playing that very same note to start the shout chorus in Shiny Stockings, it's not the same sound. Mm. It's the same right. note, mm -hmm. right? So I'm definitely using different mouthpieces for those things. So you do want to find the right equipment that will help you do this right. But then the second part becomes really, really important when we're talking about range, which is there is no shortcut, which is a, a message we use for everything. But for some reason, high notes seem to be one of those things of like, well, you're either born with it or you're not born with it, or if I could just get the right, my teeth were right or this was right. Anybody that doesn't have any kind of real physical uh, limitations, like there's not, if your face is your face and it's normal, you can play high notes. It's so your about contention building is it's that not natural. Your no, of course is not. It's not just natural. People are just born with it. They just do it. No, that's, right. that's not. A, I mean, there are people that figure it out sooner than others. Aha. Uh -huh. mm. Right. Mm -hmm. There yeah. are. And but struggle with it from like seventh grade. They're trying to play above the staff and they're scooping sure. out notes and they're goofing around there. But and by their freshman year of high school or college, the freshman year of college, they're playing G's above high C and people go, wow, they're just natural high note player. Yes, that's, <laughs> that is what happens. But a lot of times, those people, the people that we see, that some of those people even turn into professionals, and then you look and think, huh, I'm not sure that's fundamentally great trumpet playing because they're essentially survivors. Uh -huh. Because I'll tell you, this is my experience growing up. I grew up you know, in San Antonio with a ton of high school programs around, and it seemed that every high school band had somebody that could hammer out high Gs. Just every single band had these people. Now, most of them weren't very good trumpet players, so eventually that goes away. But some of them end up, it works for them. Now, that's not saying they happen to be playing the trumpet especially well. It just happened to work out for them, and they can play high notes. Now, they can't do much else. Right. Some, some of these people get, end up into some working professional ranks of being very specialized in what they can do. Now, here's where the pedagogical problems start. When you ask those people, how do you play high notes, they're like, well, I just, I do this, and they will make up some stuff about, you know, all kinds of crazy, you know, 12-part breaths, and you have to lift your right shoulder or, you know, take your, your right hand and put it behind your head, all kinds of crazy things, because they're not really sure they kind of figured it out and may have no idea what they're actually doing. Right. Now, when you look from a fundamental standpoint, uh, most great trumpet players also have great range because it's a natural extension of playing the trumpet fundamentally well. So if we look where it's not even necessary, if we look at our typical, you know, first, second, third orchestral trumpet players, you know, we've talked about our friend Pete Bond today. Pete Bond yep. has spent the last 28 years, yeah, is that correct? Mm -hmm. As playing yeah. third trumpet in the Metropolitan Opera. This second is somebody, third, yeah. This is somebody who does not need high notes. It's not part of his job description in any way. Right. right? Now, Pete is right. excellent. He's been excellent at his job for decades. Pete has total command over the whole range of the trumpet. We've all heard it. He's got a great sounding play all over the horn. It's there. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he happens to play the horn well. So my contention is range is a natural extension of playing the trumpet well. Most players don't actually practice into that range to get it. They get up to about that high C or high D range and then, then there's a lot of places where they, well, that's all the music needs, so that's all I'm going to stop. I'll just right. stop right there. Right. Well, and look, we're talking about, this is our intent, to talk about lead playing, and so we're not to assume, because this is kind of what we intended to be, we're talking about playing in big band, right? But this concept of lead playing 
and being a principal player, for example, and whatever, is informed by more than the ability to play high, right? I mean, we're right. talking about playing lead in general, being a musical leader involves in like knowing styles, command of the music you're playing, confidence, right? You got to know time periods. Back to big band for a minute. You don't play Kenton the way you play Basie, the way you play Ellington. Right. And you, and you have to be, you have to come in armed with all that stuff, not just because you can hammer high notes all day. That's great if you get all the notes. They could be entirely wrong well, in terms yes, of the style. And, and this is where what I've done a lot over the past 15 years really comes in handy because, like I said, we were starting with range because that's necessary, right? right? So let's assume that, that we're all correct here because that's always a good assumption that playing high <laughs> is, is, available, is yes. available to anyone and, as, as a natural extension of playing the trumpet well. Yeah. It's something that if you practice dutifully, you can do better. I mean, Brian, you're a perfect example of this. When we first met, one of the, when we first started doing the Trump and Woody thing, and you were like, okay, let's talk about this. And I said, well, here's my concept on this. You called me. I don't know if you remember this. I do remember You this. called me a month after our first <laughs> week together. We spent a week doing that first CD. You called me a month later and said, hey, you know what? You're right. This isn't that hard. And tongue to high G on the phone. <laughs> Dead yeah. center. And I'm yeah. like, mm -hmm. Brian, I know you could do this. I listened to you play. You, were, you sound like a million bucks. I remember the first time I heard you play that second movement of Vernon Reynolds. I'm like, wow, this guy's really good. It sounded <laughs> it was just gorgeous trumpet playing. I'm like, and you're going, I can't play high. I'm like, yes, you can. Yeah. It's a matter never of what. It. You never really put in that time of, of yeah. saying, this is an important part of my trumpet playing I want to get to. Exactly. I had a similar Joey experience. We were rooming <laughs> together in Albuquerque <laughs> on tour. That's great. And, and he's playing, and I was like, is that just a double B flat you played? He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. He said, that's the most ridiculous thing you've ever said. Get your horn out. And there <laughs> it was. Having a lesson We're right having now. a lesson right now and in the what hotel. Happened, what happened with these 10 I, minutes? I played a B-flat. B-flat. <laughs> right. It's just not something you would put the time in into that register to develop that consistency and that no, coordination. Cause, yeah, because often I don't need that. And as right. Brian as Brian says, I'm not, I know that I can't do it in traffic yet. <laughs> but, you know, but... Yeah, the ability to know that you have that changes your perspective on your own playing. And it does open up more avenues. So now yeah. when we get to the musical yeah, part, which is more. at least as important as the chops part. So, okay, so now we can agree that we've, we know that we can learn how to play high. We know that. So now the music becomes very important. And this is another part that really gets left behind because there are lots of players who decide they're going to develop these great chops and so they can just sit there and hammer high notes and hammer high notes and hammer high notes but boy there's just no musical line there and everything sounds like they're just yelling at you in high notes so what i've been doing an awful lot playing in these pops orchestras all over the country especially for the past i don't know maybe 15 years doing it a lot is i don't think it's coincidence that when i show up a lot of times i get some th these orchestras are are nice and they're they're very friendly and they're very welcoming but the trumpet sections universally are very pleased with the idea of you're playing high notes, but I've heard this a lot. Oh, yeah, but when you do it, it doesn't hurt. Because I'm playing this in the right context, in the right, in the right style, and with the right uh, a sound that will blend with an orchestra. Because you're exactly right. Because when you think about lead playing, you can think about traditional big band lead playing. But then we can also think of, like, commercial style stuff where you're thinking horn section things. The stuff right. we grew up with like Earth, Wind and Fire or all of those things that like Jerry Hay and, those, and Gary Grant were doing with Al Jarreau and all of those, those kinds of things. That's also lead playing, but it's certainly not the same thing as sitting in the back of a big band. You want to have the no. right sound and the right style for that. And that's the easiest thing to practice because here's, here's, my, here's your tip, right? Here's the tip on how to develop that. 
transcribe lead trumpet parts. It's the easiest thing to hear. It's the top line and it's the melody. Mm -hmm. So don't go, you don't have to go looking for parts. You know, start with uh, the Atomic Basie album, right? That's got a lot of great stuff on there. And just listen to Snooky Young and then mm. figure Snooky. those out. And when we say transcribe, I mean like listen until you can sing it, yep. get your horn out, try and figure it out, then play along with the recording. Because if you're matching Snooky Young, then you're right. It's really that simple. Mm. If you're matching sound, style, all of those sorts of things, then you're right. And you can do this. It's really, this is where, you know, uh, this is where we sound old. You know, uh, when we were in college, the idea of transcribing was fundamentally just techni technologically harder. You know, we had cassettes. Bill had eight tracks and reel to reel. Still do. Wax cylinders. Yeah. Right. But we had like cassettes. So if you want to listen and go back and listen and go back, that took some time and it wasn't always exact. Where with, you know, with CDs, it got a little bit better. But now, you know, essentially with a computer, you can go exactly where you want and go, I need to hear that. Okay, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. And you can listen over and over until you really own it, until you really own it. And boom, you can have your entire library essentially on your phone. You put some headphones on in a practice room and play along with those recordings. That's a great way to practice. Sure. And you can it, really get that style together. And that, that's the informed leadership. Like if you're, if you're standing in front of a big band, now we're, we're in person, so I get to have rehearsals. Like oh, I right. met my big band this past week, two days, and we read. Nice. And so I got to do my opening spiel with the big band, which is this. It's like being on a playing in a big band is like being on a bus trip. Okay. So bass player says how fast the bus goes, right? Drummer steers the bus. He's telling us where to turn, right? Where to stop and go, all that. The lead trumpet player is the captain of the bus. Right. He's like the tour director. Right. You think about the way the big band is set up. He's back there the, and he's just announcing stuff over the top of the band. And everyone needs to gravitate to that and listen to the to the tour director who is the lead trumpet player. But the most important thing to remember in all that is that I own the bus. <laughs> <laughs> it's my bus. Like but it. you know that like if you've got someone who's musically informed back there as a lead player and you think about the way we set up the band again, right? You put that lead player as close to the center, right? Mm -hmm. Your ride players close to the rhythm section, your lead players in the middle, your section guys on the other side. Everyone can listen in and listen back. Right. And that information, if that person is really well informed, that band will lock down really really quickly right which is why the musical part of this is again at least as important as the the chops part yes you need to have those notes available to you but if you can't play them musically they're worthless exactly right so you've got to be able to have that style together so and you and if you've got if you're playing the trumpet fundamentally well meaning you've got a great sound and you've got great pitch and right then you put in that great time and great style then every band you ever play with is going to be really, really happy because there is nothing worse than an unpredictable lead trumpet player. The idea of, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen back there. You know, oh, is he going to take some time off so he can make sure and hit the last note? Or, wait, last time they played that short, this time it was long. Wait, mm. last time it was this way, now it's this way. That consistency part of knowing that style, knowing what you want it to sound like, and then doing that every time 
is absolutely vital. This is a vital, that consistency part. I do remember one rehearsal I was playing. We were, it was in the rehearsal, we were sight reading. You know, it was one of these rehearsal in the afternoon, show at night. I don't remember what the show was. But it was up in Indianapolis with a lot of players that I play with all of the time. And we read through something, and I totally screwed something up. And uh, so we'd gone back, and we were just running it down again. And I made the exact same mistake again. And the lead <laughs> trombone player turned around and said, hey, listen, in that bar, is that supposed to be? And I said, oh, no, I just screwed up. He says, okay. Now, I mean, I screw up like anybody else, but doing the same exact mistake twice, and I'm fairly consistent, he thought, well, that's the way he's going to play it. So he <laughs> asked the question, which is exactly <laughs> what he should have done. And I'm like, oh, it's no, good. I screwed that up both times. And he's like, You're okay, like same just way. checking, because it's not what I have written, but you did it the same way twice, so I was concerned. Like Joey goes, uh, that's not what's written, but I like the way I played it. <laughs> I did not like the way I played <laughs> it, but I did, it, was, it was kind of funny. But he made the assumption. A correct, you know, a correct assumption mm -hmm. of I heard it twice the same way, but that's not what I have. I should check in. Right. And look, it's like any other, there's an expectation, right? So Brian will transpose all this for you, right? Um, you go to the brass band, right? If you're sitting on the corner, if you're the top man, if you're first chair in the you front row. You need to row, start speaking American English here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's an expectation that you will dictate musically what's going on. What's interesting is the guy playing even more of the high notes behind you doesn't have that role. Right. Right. The E flip, the soprano guy yeah. is there for like dressing on the top, but it's the job of that principal cornet player. Like it is in wind ensemble or concert bands, the same. Quintet. Yep. Yeah. And this is, this goes into the same thing in concert bands and in orchestras, you know, often they talk, they'll use the same language about, yeah, I'm playing lead on this. I'm playing right. first on this, that dictating the musical style is exactly the same concept in those chairs, the only difference being is the style you're playing. Right. I think and so. And, and the range demands, which often, which we're saying is this thing is usually viewed on its head, right? The, at the core of this thing should be the best musician, right? It requires all this great musicianship to play lead, right? To dictate the style and understand what's going on. And yes, you happen to need high notes to do this job. But it's right. typically like, oh, but you got high notes. Yeah, you should stand here. Well, exactly, because if you want to play these parts, then they do require right. that thing. And this becomes a real problem with high school jazz bands, that if you have a high school jazz band director that really wants to do some advanced literature, oftentimes that has a, a higher notes required of the lead trumpet. So they, you know, let's say you've got a great sax section and you've really got a rhythm section that can play. So I really want to do this lit, but you don't have a trumpet player that can play high Gs. So what I would tell high school band directors who want to do these advanced charts but don't have the lead player who has those sorts of chops, mm. first off, find appropriate literature. Don't hurt your trumpet players. Right? Cho choose right. the welfare, the welfare for everyone. Even if it matters, even if it means I need to pick different lit than I would ideally want to do, I want to make sure that I'm looking out for the health of my trumpet players and, and health of my entire band so that I'm not just beating up my lead trumpet player who's not ready to play these charts. Right. And if you, no matter where you're getting your charts, like if you're really doing some, some research and finding charts from alternate sources, good, you're going to know what it is anyway. But publishers are pretty good about this in jazz ensemble charts in particular, listing where the lead trumpet part goes to. Like that's, that's one of their defining factors. So yeah, be realistic about it. So. Yeah, I know I've, I've done some, you know, I do some uh, guest artist things here and there. And there have been times where, hey, we really wanted to do this Gordon Goodwin chart, but boy, you know, my lead trumpet player, uh, would you mind sitting in and playing lead on this chart? I'm like, 
yes, because I feel I'm doing a service <laughs> to that, right. young, that young lead trumpet player that they're not just going to get beat up trying to do those sorts of things. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you got to watch out for those sorts of things. But the, the musical part of this is so much more important and gets so much overlooked because, Bill, you're exactly right about what happens. Oh, i got a kid who can hammer out some high notes. You're my lead player. And then that student can very easily, and we've all seen this part, get that kind of lead trumpet cockiness of, oh, I'm playing lead, I'm awesome, even right. though musically <laughs> they're not really prepared for that either. So right. those yeah. are the students that really need to think, all right, I need to go listen and sound like, and I have you know, lists and lists of things to go transcribe, some, all, some of my favorite big band things. Yeah. Go, trans, go again, transcribe those lead trumpet parts. They're the way to go. Can you talk a little bit about um, the kind of timing you're talking about in terms of preparation for a high school player? I mean, we'll have some students listening and you know, going through this embouchure change that I'm doing, I, I'm finding that the, the change, I can see the change and feel the change every day, but the amount of time it's taking to get some of these upper register notes to sort of lock in is a lot longer than, I'm, than I was willing to admit. Um, and so I think that, um, that maybe we're, young people might be trying to improve or think they should be improving too fast. Um, and so I want to, can you talk a little bit about timeline um, for developing players who want to be able to play lead besides the music point? I'm talking about just purely the physical part. Sure, and that's the hard part. There's no, there's no absolute timeline. If you do this, then in four weeks, 12 weeks, or six months, this will happen. And for some people, they might stumble upon it, and for some people, it might take them a little bit longer. But this is exactly why we see so many of the snake oil salesmen online, because mm -hmm. they're going to tell you, hey, just do what I do, do what I tell you, and in, in three days, I'll give you these magic beans, and you'll have a double C. You know, I have right. in my office, I have the book, uh, Double High C in 37 Weeks. Yeah. The funny part of that book is, if you read the beginning of it, most people don't actually read the instructions. What they say is, you can only play what's in this book exactly as dictated for the next 37 weeks. So that means you have to take nine months off of doing right. anything else aside <laughs> from that <laughs> book. Right. I'm like, that's crazy. So again, uh, putting an artificial timeline on these things is a, is a bad idea because you don't know how long it's going to take. You know, the idea is if you're doing smart and dutiful practice, you will gradually get better. And it depends on where you start. It depends on, uh, you know, how you're progressing. It depends on what else you're playing. But there's no, there's no rule there. There's no absolute there. And that's the hard part. So you might get to a place of thinking, how come this isn't happening yet? I mean, it's better, yeah, but I want it to be much better. That's just being a trumpet player, hopefully. I mean, that's, I mean I'm, yeah. I'm still doing that. Of like, wow, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I would think I'd have this mastered by now, but there is no mastered. Mm. Yeah. And so we could be talking, like if you're training, like you have a lead player in your, in your big band who's a senior, and she's going to be graduating in June, and so you need somebody else to come back in September, but maybe you haven't been training the next person. Um, yeah. Oh, that happens, uh, until, that happens a until lot. Until June, and then you go, well, that's not very much time for them to get up and running. So for these band directors, you've got to be planning several years out and cultivating this. You um, do want to be cultivating this culture of yeah. this is something that I is available to you, and if you're interested in this, we can absolutely get you there. That should be built into your system. Otherwise, you're just relying on, boy, I hope somebody's interested in this and is practicing. 
which is a dangerous way to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it's you know we always talk about building up a register as a, an extension, right? But this right. musical thing is the same thing. What we're right. talking about, this is an extension of your vocabulary musically. So identifying the students who who really seem to have an interest in doing this kind of heavy lifting and then getting the recordings in front of them and the players and starting to cultivate that is a, you know, and yeah, looking down the road a few years too. Oh, absolutely. I remember we were in Westchester and um, it was one of the um, times where a bunch of us were doing solos in front of the the wind ensemble and Belk did uh, the Mendez, La Virgin. Virgin de la Macarena. And, uh, and he, and he was putting the A on the end and, uh, and we were backstage and I said something to him offhanded, like, um, Wow, it must be nice just to naturally have that that note. <laughs> and it was the only time, actually, in however long I've known him, that I've actually seen him like visibly get angry. And uh, he said, "F you, man! It took me twenty years to learn how to do that." You know, that's no joke. And I have seen a lot of people argue online that you're either born with or not, and name one like professional lead player that didn't have that as a kid. And I'm like, well, Scott Elk. Yeah. Scott, right. you know, Scott, when he was at North Texas, uh, mm-hmm. you know, was was a, a jazz player who struggled with the upper register by his own admission. Guess what? He figured it out. Yeah. He said he could play almost play a high C when he left his undergrad. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah and now he just says he can't play double B flats and, unless, of course, they're written and he wants to. And then they <laughs> or always seem to play them all out. day. Or if it's on its way to a B. Right. <laughs> And he could kind of catch it on the way by. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I, this is, uh, I mean, this, this is a really good one. And I'm, I'm glad we're, we have the ability to tie in the musical stuff with the physical stuff, right? Because too often it's built around just hammering high notes. And there's so much more right. to it. Oh, so absolutely. much more to it. Yeah. Yeah, Liesl Whitaker and I have talked about this. Liesl, who's retiring from the Jazz Ambassadors after you know, 20 years in the Army, both playing lead in the Blues and the Jazz Ambassadors. And Liesl's just a, a, a great lead trumpet player. She's like... Totally killer. She's, she's, she's spectacular. And we've had these discussions because for her, like owning a double C has never been important to her in any way. Because she's like, this isn't something that's written an awful lot or musically that's part of this sort of thing. Like, I'm into playing the music and knocking this down. And, uh, you know. And she does. And she does it as well as anyone. <laughs> mm. like and making sure it look easy. You hear her play yeah. lead and go, right, that's how so that goes. That's and it's the goes. right style. <laughs> it's the right sound. It's it's really, really fine lead trumpet playing. I've heard her do some amazing things. And I will say one of my favorite recordings, the Army Blues years ago did a, uh, a recording called With Gratitude. It's a great CD. And there's an arrangement of Shenandoah on oh, there yeah. with some incredible tenor sax playing as well but the way she plays lead over that is just beautiful it's yeah. stunning yeah, just it, gorgeous yeah, she, sound linear and, and let's be mm. clear about this she's got tons of chops like you need a nice big wide open high g on the end and it's always there no problem right yep. you know yeah. but you know she's doing this from the musical standpoint of like this is how musically i want to do this and does that really really well yeah, yeah. and leading Right. Yeah, she puts the lead in lead trumpet playing. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of people that seem to want to put the trumpet in lead trumpet playing. <laughs> right. But maybe it's important that lead is first. Yeah, yeah, that you're taking the lead. That might be a great way to wrap that up. Yeah. Uh, well, as always, it's time for no offense.
that portion of the program where we call out someone or something that makes no sense to us. And since we say no offense, we get to say whatever we want. So this week, <laughs> look, there's only one way to get better at transposition, and that is to do it and to fail and to fail boldly. And if you're still writing in note names in parts that you need to transpose, no offense, but please stop it. Struggle, <laughs> practice more, make mistakes and get better, but stop writing in transposition. Can I tell my transposition story now? I was hoping you so, would. Please so do. I heard a great story, secondhand, thirdhand, of a time when Bert Turex was sitting next to Dave Bilger in Dallas. That's a double drop right there. Yeah. yeah. Dang. And, wow. Um, it's not either one of them that I heard this story from. Um, and they're, they're playing a show, and it, there's a second trumpet solo. Um, and in the second part, I guess it's a, you have to transpose. It might have been an E. And I think there were a bunch of accidentals, and it was a pretty sticky solo. And so Bert um, wrote out the f whatever four measures it was. And he had the little piece of paper sitting on the bottom of his stand. And they went through the rehearsals all week. Um, and they got to the show, and they're up on stage playing the show. And they get to two measures before the solo. And Bilger leans over and grabs the piece of paper mm. and posts it down through the risers. <laughs> oh, no. And, and Bert no. completely folds, completely folds. And I heard this story, and I said, I, I, that seems like Bilger's a nice guy and and funny guy and but that seems like really brutal and when i met bert when we were down at itg uh, i asked him about the story he said oh yeah that's totally true and i totally <laughs> folded <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> and that never is, awesome. and never did it again yes right. was he, he sure said that that was the turning point in his life yeah. right Wow, yeah, that's a great story. But this, this is again, a, you know, a skill as a trumpet player that you need and should own, and they're really easy to develop. What I start with my students when they get here is we go right to the 150 melodies in the back of the Arvins book. Yeah. Yep. And I'll say, play me number one. It's a short little melody. And I said, now, if that were a C trumpet part, what would you do if you're holding a B flat trumpet? And they're like, um, I mean, I guess I'd like, you know, go up a step. I'm like, right. Why? Because I'll tell you this, when I was young and was learning how to transpose, what I learned were 12 different rules. Well, if it's oh. C, you go up a step and you add two sharps. And if it's down a step, then you go oh. down a step and you add you know, two oh, flats. Yeah. I'm like, this is a terrible way to go. So That's I want right. to make this easier and simple. So transposition, here's transposition made simple. If you're thinking, but it's too hard and I can't do it, here's what you can do and you can start this today. Take the Arbenz book, go to the 150 melodies and start. And if you're holding a B-flat trumpet and it says C trumpet, you just think, here's all of transposition. From the horn you're holding to the horn it's written for. Mm. So if it says F trumpet and you're holding a B-flat trumpet, well, you're going to go up a fifth. How do I get from B-flat to F? And then you do, then you change the key signature the same way. Yep. Key so if it's written in C and you're going to go up a fifth, now it's in G. And now you got to get used to reading those notes in the wrong place. Right? But start mm. with short melodies. So we'll go through that. And then, obviously, you know, the, the uh, Soxa book is very good, and the Caffarelli yep. book is very good. Yeah. And then the Bordoni book is really good because that changes, you know, you know, seven or eight or nine times within. The, and if you play it on B-flat or C, they're completely different etudes. Right. Yeah, right. They're all different yeah. transpositions. We have great resources for this, and it can start with – you can even just take a – if you're in high school, 
take your beginning band book out and say, I'm going to learn this whole beginning band book as if it were written for C trumpet, and then as if it were written for A trumpet, as if it were written for D trumpet. And just work your way through and get used to that. But it's, it's, a, it's a simple concept, but it does take some real practice time and commitment to develop that skill so that you think, oh, well, I'm not going to play in an orchestra. I'm not going to need how to transpose. That's not true. Here's what my mm -hmm. high school teacher, he told me this story when I was a senior in high school. He said to me, hey, listen, you know, I, we've been good, and you're doing good. You're doing well. I was a good transposer. I was you know, practicing all that kind of stuff. He says, you know, this is going to happen. You're going to be stuck on a gig somewhere, and there's going to be a singer, and your chart's going to be in the wrong key. And <laughs> three years later, I'm at the Disney All-American College Orchestra wearing my red, white, and blue tuxedo. Yeah, that's right. We look good. Mm. <laughs> and Donnie Osmond was our guest. Wow. Now, there were a couple of things here that were really problematic. He didn't bring a conductor with him, and he couldn't read music, which became very <laughs> obvious at the second tune where I had we had an optional vamp at the beginning, and I raised my hand and I said, are, are we doing the optional vamp, or do we start a measure three? And he gave me a blank stare, and I walked up and showed him the music, and he said, could you sing this for me? Oh. <laughs> so I was sort of taking the lead as the lead trumpet player and running, helping run the rehearsal and kind of keep him straight. When we got to the last chart, and do you remember Turn Your Love Around? I think it was like a, yes. was that a George mm -hmm. Benson thing, right? Nice little horn section. So we get to the end, and that's the end of this tune, and he stops, and he looks over at me, so I kind of stop the orchestra, and I walk up, which is what how the rehearsal's been going, and we'd gotten through, and he said, it's supposed to go up there. And I said, I'm not <laughs> sure what you mean. Mm. And so he sang it for me, and there was a half-step modulation. <laughs> and so I said, okay, listen, there. rhythm section, they're like, yeah, we've got it. They knew what they were, they were very, mm. we had right. an orchestra. And I said, okay, so from you know letter H to the end, everything will be up a half-step. And I thought, boy, my teacher was really on this. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. And so mm. me being the, the smart Alec trumpet player I was, I wrote over my part in H, you know, because that would be <laughs> natural trumpet. <laughs> half step. But I was sitting there, and sitting right next to me on, on my right was Chris Moore, who's a you know, the trumpet professor at, at Florida State now. Dr. We're, Moore. We're, right. Dr. Moore. And we both went, yeah, okay. Right. Because that's just sort of normal. The string players uh, at the time were not exactly excited about this idea of transposing <laughs> up a half step. Mm. But there it was. You need to have that skill because well, it will come in handy. Yeah. Uh, I think, too, sometimes students struggle with it because we associate it as this visual thing, right? Like mm -hmm. you're saying, you have to read notes that aren't there. you got to read up a fifth, down a fourth, whatever it happens to be. But let's not forget, too, it's an aural pursuit, right? Like mm -hmm. it's going to sound the same. Right. You're going to make it sound the same. Yes, it's in a different key, different pitch center. But let's not forget about the fact that you got to rely on your ears to do that. Um, grew up uh, playing in a, a, you know, throw together big band in the summer sometimes, you know, when I was a kid. And I remember kind of being in the section and there was this guest singer that came in who was uh, prone to modulate. Uh, <laughs> no, and I'll never forget the guys. Man, this one time she's doing this thing and it was basically just a rhythm section. And I remember the bass player you know, leaning over the piano guy going, what, what, we're in D, it's in D, hold, nope, nope, E flat, hang on, yeah, she's in E, you know, <laughs> like, it just was all over the road, but, you know, those guys had the, they right. could figure it out, but, but they're using doing, their ears. But you're talking yeah. about using your ears, what I do, when I have students, when they show up in their freshman year and they have a C trumpet, which isn't everybody, but some students come in with a B flat and a C trumpet, those first studies in the Arvins, I say, okay, on B flat and C and on C and B flat. If you have any questions about what it should sound like, play it on the other horn as written. Right. Then you, because you, you it's easily stuff you can read, then you can hear it and you get right. an idea of what it's supposed to sound like. Absolutely. So, Joey, is it true that Maynard's book was all trumpet and C and you had to transpose it? 
That's well, a, I, I actually played it on D trumpet and read it down a step. Oh, that would. <laughs> but there was. That. I'll tell you what. There was one chart, and we recorded it. You can hear it. There was a chart we, we were rehearsing. D. <laughs> <laughs> there was one chart called uh, the uh, He Can't Swing, which we recorded. I'm on the album These Cats Can Swing, and Maynard mm. sings it. So he brought this chart. He we and all Willie know those made people. Yeah. What, uh, it's a very funny chart. It's very clever. It's about the guys who hang around musicians who can't swing. It's so good. <laughs> clever. Go listen to it. It's great. Okay. But Maynard brought this chart in that he and Willie Maiden had written decades before and said, I don't think we ever really recorded this. I want to bring this out and kind of put it through. So in rehearsal, we played it, and he said, I'm not sure that's the right key. Could we just play that down a step? No. Can we try this up? Can we just... And we probably read it in the rehearsal in four or five different keys until we found the right key for Maynard to sing it in. But I'll mm. tell you what, every guy in that every guy in that band went, yeah, okay. And then we just did that. Wow. And then we just passed in the parts. And, and Chip McNeil was the music director at the time. And Chip said, I'll recopy these. And, and I don't remember. I think it was, did we end up up a step from where it was originally written? So I, of course, wrote trumpet in C on my part. I said, <laughs> it's going to be fine. And, and, and he looked at me and says, you're not going to be here forever. Give me your part. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, uh, but we did that in a rehearsal just to find the right key. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, even on Maynard's band, that did that came in. The transposition skills came in handy. Fantastic. Yeah. And that's where, you know, again, I can say jazz players could hide in an orchestra any day, but that doesn't usually go the other direction. You know what I mean? <laughs> but a jazz player could take those aural skills and bring that into play and make it work, you know, yeah, which is a big, yes. big part of it. And I, I like the Getchell first book of practical studies. Yeah. That's right? really good. That's really good. Love that for transposition. I also love it in teaching piccolo and E flat because just the registers, it's easy to read. I use, I use the first four studies, especially that are ideal for piccolo playing because yeah. you read them as written. They're eight bar <laughs> phrases and you can play all eight bars in one breath on piccolo, which you got to get used to. But then as you right. transpose and read them up, if you're on A pick and you read them up a fourth, like it's a D trumpet, right. that's right. That's the right heart the of what you, you're going to do yeah. a lot on the piccolo. Absolutely. Yeah. But no matter what, don't write it in. Don't Come on. write it in. Stop. Spend some time. Writing it in. Whether it's letters or you're drawing the three circles and coloring in the ones to press down, no. which is Brian's <laughs> method. No. Don't. That works for me. Don't, don't do that. Don't do it. Stop it. Right. Just stop it. Well, listen, that about does it for today, and if not, it should. So thanks for joining us again on The Open Bell. Stay tuned. Subscribe to whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, patience, and perseverance. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell. <laughs>